Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast <coughs> entitled Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp's Narrative Drift. Liverpool's title defence this year has been <coughs> basically a complete disaster. It's just not happened at the moment they're you know, on the verge of missing Europe entirely or possibly even worse, qualifying for the Europa Conference. So that is basically the brand new tournament next season that's going to slot in below the Europa League. So it really would be just, you can imagine, Thursday nights, middle of nowhere against teams you've never heard of, which would be such a massive come down having you know won the league first time in you know, basically a generation, you know, having got to the Champions League final, having won the Champions League. So I, the the first question, the first and most obvious question is, well, why has Liverpool's title title defence gone so badly? And I, you, the first one is really you know, the injuries. You know, you've had Man City's form, you know, the hangover from the title win, the pandemic. You've had a short preseason, and you know, possibly even a lack of signings. I think if you sort of look into each one of those explanations, I don't think they quite fully stack up. You know, the short preseason, well, that's the same for every team. The pandemic, it's the it's the same for every team. You know, Liverpool have been knocked out of Europe just at the you know, just as we were sort of moving into the you know, when we had the lockdown and when, you know, football stopped, when sports in general stopped. You know, they didn't play deep into the summer, you know, in the same way that, you know, Man City in the Champions League, you know, Manchester United in the Europa League. You know, they were out of both of the domestic cups pretty early and they'd won the title. You know, when football restarted, it was, wasn't a case that Liverpool had to you know, win out or anything like that. You know, it really was a case that, you know, they just had to turn up, win a couple of games and the job was done. So the point is is that, you know, once they have won the title, you were able to rest and rotate the squad. You weren't in a position where you had to literally, you know, every, you know, every last the last full measure of devotion. That it wasn't that kind of a season. And in the same sense that you also had the awareness that there was going to be a tight turnaround to next season. There would be an abbreviated preseason because you had the Euros in twenty twenty one. So there was a sense that Liverpool had a bit of a drop on everybody else in, in that regards. I mean, if you then look at, you know, the Man City's form, they only really started you know, performing in you know, early to mid-December. Up to that point, they had been mid-table, they had been struggling. There was a window of opportunity where Liverpool, a, you know, the Liverpool that we've seen the last two or three seasons, could not quite buried Manchester, you know, Manchester City, but could have certainly put a, a gap between that would force Man City and would put Man City under pressure. Whereby in this instance, in this year, you've had a situation where Man City have sort of streaked ahead and there's just no one that you can realistically imagine is going to be able to perform the sort of, you know, extended winning streak to be able to catch up to them. Nor is there the likelihood that Man City are really going to sort of you know, drop form to the extent that they'd have to lose five, six, seven games in a row. It just doesn't feel very likely. Which then kind of leads you down to you know the the injuries situation. Now Virgil Van Dijk, you know, being knocked out basically for the rest of the season, you know, 
you know, at game five of the season. He, you know, he's the heart and soul of that team. And yeah, you can ask the question, does the nature of that injury in the opponent make an impact? And I think, yeah, to an extent, yes. You, you've had the, the fact that it's in a derby. You know, it's against your biggest local rivals. You know, it's unexpected. It was kind of, you don't usually have your best defender knocked out for the rest of the season by the opposed goalkeeper in the box. It's just not something that usually happens. You could sort of imagine, you know, doing a knee injury during a tackle or you know, something on a defensive scale. You don't really expect it to be you know, on the edge of the, you know, the oppo's box. It's just not something you would expect as such. And the fact that it was so reckless and that, you know, it was unpunished by VAR. And so I think it did have a, a sort of a narrative impact regarding how the media and football fans in general perceive Liverpool. Oh, their title defence is over now. And the thing is, is that Plenty of teams that have won a title have had players that have been injured for large parts of the season. It is not unprecedented. But I think it stems really from Virgil van Dijk being the missing piece that took Klopp and Liverpool over the top. That turned them from the team that finishes second, the team that is the finalist, to the team that wins the, the big game. That wins the title. You know, the defensive improvement that, you know, Virgil van Dijk from pretty much day one brought to Liverpool was just noticeable. You know, the fact is that Alisson definitely helped, but that was at a later point. Even with a slightly less, you know, solid goalkeeper, Liverpool would have still likely won the title. I guess the, the nearest sort of comparison that I could think of was really, you know, when Cantona was banned in sort of 94... 95 for the Kung Fu kick at Selhurst Park. You know, losing that sort of talismanic figure for basically the rest of the season. So in that case, you were talking really solidly sort of four or five months. And the fact that, you know, they'd bought Andy Cole, but Andy Cole was not a light-for-light replacement for, you know, Eric Cantona. But if you look at it, that Manchester United team went to the final day of the season and, and had they scored one more goal at Upton Park against West Ham they'd have been league champions. They went to the cup final. So I don't think you can necessarily sit there and say that Virgil van Dijk is a reason that Liverpool are currently, you know, seventh. You know, out of the, you know, barely clinging onto a European place at this point. Not guaranteed. If the league was to stop tomorrow, Liverpool wouldn't be guaranteed a, a European place. And what it then comes down to is, is that there was an element of an element of carelessness. I mean, they'd sold Dejan Lovren in the summer, but they didn't replace him. And that their main other centre halves in, you know, John Matip and Joe Gomez had a history of injuries. They were not players that you can necessarily guarantee were going to be fit for a whole season. So you were putting a huge amount of emphasis already on Virgil Van Dyke. And it wasn't as if you could sit there and say that Liverpool had you know, two or three young centre-halves who looked who'd been you know, maybe playing in the Championship on loan or had, you know, had a loan in the Premier League who were just ready to step up if the worst was to happen. They weren't in that position. And if you then look at you know, whether you could say the hangover from the league title win... I'm not 100% sure. I mean, you had sort of two or three months where there was no football. 
There was no training. And the awareness was Liverpool were going to win the title. And then, you know, they won it pretty quickly after the restart. So you've had sort of a, a long period of time that Liverpool were basically either the champions or the champions in name already. So it's not as if you have a situation where if you win it, you know, let's say last game of the season, May 16th, and suddenly before you know it, it's August and you're back playing, you know, in the, in the community shield and the season's about to start. You didn't have that kind of situation or a situation where you win the title and then all your players go off because it's the Euros or the World Cup. So you have a situation where, you know, literally you don't have a, a time to sit down and really enjoy having won the title. Liverpool had month after month after month of knowing that the, the title was theirs. You know, so I, I can't imagine that it was a situation that, you know, as much as it was, you know, hugely, you know, meaningful for Liverpool, for the players, for the fans, for, for just everyone surrounded with that football club, at the same time, there wasn't endless amounts of parades there wasn't huge amounts of parties it you know in a pandemic era with a lockdown you're not in the same situation where every single day someone was buying you a drink in the pub it isn't that kind of situation so i think it then comes down to so if we're saying injuries are the, the main reason you know i suppose the key question then is well how snake bitten have liverpool actually been by injuries so you know you know, I'm not the biggest fan of give it, doing long lists, but you know, let's just go through their squad. So you've had you know 27 games so far, and Allison has started 22 of them in goal. Robertson has had 27 starts. Trent has had 24 starts, one sub appearance. Uh, Jordan Henderson has made 20 starts, one sub appearance. Fabinho has made 18 starts. Wijnaldum's made 25 starts. Go down the list. Salah has made 24 starts, Marnier's made 23 starts, Firmino's made 25 starts. You're literally looking at that list and saying that you've got eight main starters who have made 20-plus starts this season. And it's not, you know, eight of them all at 20, so that means seven games missed. You're you know, literally looking at most of the, the team have been there. You know, you've got Fabinho at 18. So you've had nine starters at this point who have played virtually you know, most games. You know, even if you look at the people that would be really, you know, sort of filling in. You know, you, Thiago Alcantara's had 11 starts. You know, Cater's had six starts. Milner has had seven starts and 11 sub-appearances. You know, Oxlade-Chamberlain's made half a dozen appearances, a couple of starts. You know, in terms of your backup strike, you know, your, your front three have played virtually every single game. And the people that have been basically filling in for them, it's been Shakiri's had four starts, Origi's had a couple, Jota's had five starts. You know, you're sitting there looking at it and saying, well, yeah, there really isn't a huge outside of the you know, the centre halves. You have had the, most of the same outfit, and even if you take the centre halves, you know, Matip's made nine starts this season. Gomez has made nine, seven starts. You know, Virgil's made five starts. You're talking, you know, near enough, you know, about twenty-one starts by their, you know, first choice, you know, trio of centre halves. So really, you're you're not covering as many games as much as you know. Any player filling in for Virgil van Dijk is, in some way, shape or form is going to be a little bit of a drop down. You're going to have a loss of, of quality to a certain degree. But if you're looking at it, you know, 
You know, Nat Phillips has made six starts and has done pretty well for a you know relatively young player. You've had the situation where Reese Williams has made a couple of appearances, one start, one sub appearance. And you know, again he didn't do anything, you know, hugely wrong and was relatively promising considering again, you know, the relative lack of pedigree. And then you've had the signing they made at the in January, Ozan Kabak, he's made four starts. And if you look at the people that have they've had to fill in, you're really saying that, you know, Fabinho's done a pretty, you know, I'd say well above average, you know, league average performance. You'd then say Henderson has been about league average. I mean, if you look at where they rank in terms of defensively, the moment they're ranking 12th, you know, 35 goals conceded in 27 games. It's, you know, middle of the pack. It's maybe two or three goals more than the next few teams in front of them. But if you then take away the freak, you know, Villa game where they lost 7-2 and the City mauling where they lost 4-1, you're really looking at, you know, if you take away the Villa game, 28 goals in 26 games. If you take away the Man City result, it's, you know, 24 goals in 25 games. So, relatively speaking, they haven't had a huge decline. It's not a situation where they've conceded 50, 60 goals, where they're literally, it's as if you've got a relegation back four and the rest of the team are at their, you know, existing high level. So, I think it really comes down to whether you think Klopp and Liverpool did enough to replace Virgil van Dijk and I don't think they did. If you look at the two signings they made in January, they made the Ozan Kabak signing from Schalke, which is a about a 900 grand loan fee that they put in, and then they bought Ben Davies from Preston North End, they gazumped Celtic for 1.67 million. So realistically speaking, you're talking the best part of you know, about 2.7, 2.8 million pounds if you factor in their wages, you're not looking at much more than somewhere in the vicinity of £4 million. That is chump change for a team of Liverpool's quality. And the amount of you know money that they have spent you know previously on this team. And the fact is they made those signings at the back end of the January transfer window. It's not like they... The thing is, they've had months, weeks and weeks and weeks, but, you know, knowing that Virgil was injured and then having the injuries to... Matip, then having the injuries to Gomez, to know that they were going to be short centre-halves. And yet, January the 1st, they didn't make that move, they didn't seem to want to make that move, and it's only when it literally looked like they were they was running out of centre-halves that they make these kind of two moves. But they're, they're relatively low-key moves. The Ben Davies signing, they have yet to play him in the league. So my argument is, is, why buy him if you don't really think he's good enough? In other words, he's an emergency signing, but you know, relatively speaking, if you don't play him, why don't you just basically if you're going to, you know, this season isn't going to be one where they're going to be hugely successful, you might as well give Reese Williams and Nat Phillips the playing time on the off chance that they've got a higher ceiling. I mean Ben Davies is a very good, solid championship defender. And I think it's, a, relatively speaking, even a little bit ridiculous to have not played him at all. And with, with Quebec, I'll probably discuss him a little bit further on in the podcast, but you know, he's a you know, young, relatively highly rated defender. But 
I think if you then look at you know a couple of other of Liverpool signings, I think the one that's really sort of sticks out like a sore thumb is Konstantinas. Uh, I'm going to probably butcher this pronunciation, but uh, Tismikas, who is their backup left back. They signed him for eleven point seven million pounds from Olympiakos in the summer, and I suppose the the principle was is that that they needed a bit of fullback cover, and yet they haven't played him in the league. They, he's, uh, I think he's had one sub appearance so far in the league. He's barely played outside of that. And and for £11.7 million, and I think the thing that when that signing was announced that sort of surprised me was to, to go from the you know, Greek Super League to the Premier League, and especially to Liverpool, was a huge jump. He isn't wasn't a, you know... Particular, you know, he was relatively rated, but he wasn't someone that you would sit there and was you know being linked with teams of the the stature of Liverpool. It was a bit of a surprise move, and if you then bring back you know Klopp's argument with um, after the one all draw at Brighton earlier you know last you know late last year with Des Kelly of BT Sport. And he was saying, well, the, you know, this schedule was completely ridiculous. It's screwing Liverpool over. And, you know, I'm really worried about, you know, Andy Robertson getting an injury. And it's like, well, the, the argument I would then put is you've spent £11.7 million on a reserve left back and you don't play him. That's on you. That's the problem that you've made. If you bought the wrong player, that's on Liverpool Football Club. You can't blame BT Sport. You can't blame the Premier League. Everyone knew what they were signing up for in this year, that it was going to be a compressed season. There was going to be huge amounts of midweek games. You know, you'd had you know, three months of inactivity. You then had lots of games all pushed into the summer, limited you know, off-season, limited pre-season. It was really, you know, your ability to rotate was going to be what was going to separate teams that were, you know, relatively speaking, evenly matched. You know, the the Jota injury is a classic example. You know, he started brilliantly well for Liverpool, but he then picked up this injury because he was played in a Champions League dead rubber game where he didn't need to play at all. So I think if you then take, you know, Liverpool's entire transfer sort of policy, you know, this summer, uh, sorry, last summer, and this you know, January transfer window. So, you know, they spent £40 million on Jota, and relatively speaking, that's looked a decent signing. You spent this £11 million on the Constantinos. You know, that's not worked at all. And you just brought Thiago Alcantara for about £19.8 million from Bayern Munich. And Thiago has looked you know, pretty good, but, you know, again, when they signed him, he had some injury problems. He's 29. But, you know, they spent just under £75 million, you know, plus the you know two loan deals they've made and the permanent signing of Ben Davis. And that is a fairly decent amount of money, especially when you're factoring in a you know pandemic. Uh, the players that they've sold were, you know, Rian Brewster, they sold him to Sheffield United for £23.4 million. They'd sold Lovren for £10.8 million. They got about just over £1 million from a loan fee for Harry Wilson. They'd sold one of their you know, sort of youth players for about £3.5 million to Reading. So they'd got back about £38-39 you know, million. So you, your net spend is £35 million. And I suppose the question mark is, is that, was that enough? You know, if you haven't, you know, in the summer, if you didn't, you know, have the defense center, center, you know, center halves correctly, you know, the depth wasn't there. You know, you were relying on Matip, 
Van Dyke and Gomez, all of whom to stay fit for the entire season without there being any problems, which seems, you know, relatively speaking, negligent. You've had these injuries, and then in January you haven't really spent any money on fixing the issue. You know, you've got this young guy in from the Bundesliga, but this is a Schalke team that was all over the place, that were on a, you know, a massive losing streak. They were literally on the way to defeat you know to breaking the record for the most defeats ever in a row in the Bundesliga that is not going to be a player that you know this is a player that has no experience of playing in England he's a young player you've brought him in the last minute in January so you're not going to have a huge amount of time to really acclimatize him he's going to be basically thrown in at the deep end and expected to perform so he's not going to have time really to negotiate and to figure out you know, how to play in this Liverpool team. Because let's face it, you've got Liverpool who are trying to win Champions League, they're trying to get into the Champions League, they're trying to defend their title, and you've just been playing at Schalke who are almost certainly going down and who have been useless for basically the last part of the 18 months. So, you know, it's a completely different you know, scheme. And situation and pressure. And I don't think it's fair for him to then somehow be then expected to, you know. And the thing is, I think you have to in some way, shape or form criticise Klopp, is the fact that you've had a situation where, although he's had these injuries, you've had a situation where every single week it seems the centre-half pairing changed. I think at some point, really just to bring some stability, I think you had to, at some point to give someone a run of games, a partnership. Even if it's not perfect. Because at this point, you're, you're a million miles away from perfect. But I think you, there's more benefit to Liverpool from a defensive stability if you know who is playing. Because, you know, the set, the fullbacks and the goalkeeper have been pretty much, you know, constant. Having a couple of centre-halves and allowing them to, you know, really build up some form of partnership is going to be better than just trying, you know, throwing you know, darts at a dartboard and hoping one sticks in and that a partnership comes out of it. You're going to have to have a certain amount of patience in your decision-making process and Liverpool haven't really shown that and that is a concern. So at this point, really, the you can see why Liverpool's title defence has you know, fallen by the wayside. But I think a certain amount of it has been... It's been self-inflicted by poor decision-making. I don't think their transfer windows have been particularly effective. I don't think injuries are enough of an excuse to explain why you're not anywhere near the top four. The thing is, I can imagine if you sit there and you lose Virgil for a season, you might think that really, and you've got a dominant Man City, you know, first is possibly not going to happen, but there's certainly enough quality and talent in Liverpool and you know, enough resource in terms of you wanted to get a proper centre-half in early in January to stem some of these losses. I mean, losing five games at home for Liverpool is you know, really just unprecedented. They could have done more. It's, you know, if you're John Henry, if you are Fenway Group, you could definitely you know, argue that you're going to need to sign a centre-half at some point. You're not going to be able next season to say, OK, this was a freak occurrence, Virgil will be fit for the whole season, so will Joel Matip, so, so will you know, Joe Gomez, and we don't need to sign a centre-half. You need to sign someone. 
you're going to have to spend some coin. It's not going to be someone that you can just sign from Preston because he was literally just out, he was going to be out of contract at the end of the season, was due to go to you know, Celtic, and you've gazumped him. You know, as much as Ozan Kabak in the future could be a great centre-half, I don't think you can sit there and legitimately say, we think Ozan Kabak is going to be a solution for half a season. You know, that's just too much of a step up. So, what this then, I guess, leads to is, is why had Liverpool from this sort of, not quite zenith moment, but from, you know, having, you know, in back-to-back seasons won the Champions League and the league, why is, oh, am I saying that there is a, what, there's been a narrative drift at Liverpool? And for me, the argument I would posit is that winning the Premier League was the club's North Star. It was the one thing that absolutely everybody in Liverpool, FC, wanted, needed. And you're talking about the local fans. That's the people who live in Liverpool itself and Merseyside and the surrounding area. The people that go to the home games. The people that go you know, drink in the pubs in and around you know, Anfield and Stanley Park. You have the national fans, that's the fans in Surrey, the fans in Cornwall, the fans all across the country who are Liverpool fans for one way or another, whether it be family reason, whether they just love watching Dalgleish on TV, whether they love watching Gerald on TV, and international fans who love the, the Liverpool culture, the Beatles, you know, the Mersey Beat, you know, all of this brilliant success, the, you know, watching you know, European games on TV in the middle of the night, seeing the Anfield crowd. Oh, and that's a hugely diverse set of people with diverse expectations and what, the, and what they believe Liverpool FC stands for. Now, you have the board, you had Jurgen Klopp, you had you know, what I've described in, in a past podcast as the Liverpool media industrial complex. So you know, the, the journalists who are massive Liverpool fans. You have the ex-players who you know, have become pundits off of the back of their careers at Liverpool. So you've had all of those people Desperately wanted Liverpool to win a Premier League title. And because, not just for the sake of winning it, because what happens is once you have a situation in 92 when you go the advent of the Premier League, what you did was you created a situation almost like in years, how you know, Western years are dealt with. It is, you know, you have BC before Christ... And then you have, you know, after death, you know, what we now call Anno Domini, which is every single, you know, after Christ's death, that's when, you know, year started. And that's why we're in the year, you know, 2021. And that's what happened with Liverpool, is that the Liverpool dynasty was relegated to BC, that historic time frame. So that means you're talking terraces. You know, not full all-seater stadiums. You're talking about, you know, Victorian Edwardian-built stadiums. You know, pre-Sky Television, limited foreign players. You know, no overt com- commercialization that we see today. And that had a psychological impact. It made it more distant. It meant that that basically the league titles of Liverpool, the dominance in the seventies, the eighties, and a tiny little bit in the, this late early nineties. It was a different league trophy that they were holding up and parading around Anfield. You know, that has a distance to it. It was a different competition, a different amount of teams in the league. And the more, but it made it more distance than it actually was. You know, in the mid-90s, Liverpool had been dominant 
only a few years ago, but it felt more because you'd had so many more new stadiums, you know, new managers, new players from countries that you just hadn't really heard of before, and especially not heard from in a footballing context. And so that with each passing year, the, the Liverpool dynasty became more distant, more foreign to us. I mean, a whole generation, and this is a generation that I am a part of, grew up without Liverpool being dominant, but not even particularly relevant. It wasn't just that they weren't winning, it was that you had Manchester United, but the teams that were actually competing with them were Blackburn, Blackburn Rovers, Newcastle, Arsenal and Chelsea. They were the teams that were competing with Ferguson. The advent of the Premier League era, was you know really became a you know symbolic changing of the guard between the Anfield boot room led dynasty of Liverpool to Manchester United's Fergusonian dynasty, you know Ferguson you know constantly quotes a statement I wanted to knock Liverpool off their perch, and so really winning the the Premier League then just it was their north star it was everything that had to happen for Liverpool to. I wouldn't say regenerate, but for Liverpool to feel like they were back. The point is, is that you could argue, yes, you had the Hulier in sort of two thousand and one, where they won the treble, so they won the League Cup, the FA Cup, and the UEFA Cup. You know, they'd won FA Cups, they'd won you know, League Cup a few times, so FA Cup in ninety two, League Cup in ninety five. Even under Rafa the Gaffer, they'd won the you know FA Cup against West Ham in that you know ludicrously brilliant final, but and you'd even won the Champions League in two thousand five and two thousand and nineteen, but those Champions League triumphs weren't enough, because they were dangerously close to cup runs. You know it was a bit too close to to you know Porto winning it in two thousand and four under Jose. You know it was the Dortmund team of ninety seven. You know, upsetting Juventus in the final. It wasn't a sign of pure, outrageous dominance. You know, the point is, Liverpool's previous you know, European Cup victories and their triumphs were a sign of dominance. It's because they'd won the league. Or they were in the, the European Cup because they were the defending champions. Whereby, when Liverpool were winning it in 2005, 2019, it's because they'd finished... In the top four. They hadn't won the league. And their Champions League success. Almost were more of a byproduct of outsiderdom. You know they weren't the favourites. In the, in either one of those finals. Against AC Milan. You know AC Milan were. The modern Champions League. European royalty. They had Maldini. They had. All of these players that were just. You know, household names. They were always there or thereabouts in terms of getting to the Champions League final and winning it. You know, even Messi and Barcelona in two thousand and nineteen semi final, they lost three 0 at the New Camp. It you know there was a breakaway right at the death that could have, would have made it four 0 and you'd imagine my you know put you know Liverpool out of the tournament. I you know, don't necessarily know had. Barcelona had been defending a four 0 lead. Whether the collapse would have happened potentially, but you know, you for Liverpool to have won that game, they'd have had to won five 0 which is you know, and four 0 just to get extra time. I think it's a completely different sort of mountain to climb in that regards. You 
And that was the, the whole sort of point. There was a bit of outsiderdom to it. You know, in 2005, they had to have a last-minute Gerard Wonder goal against, I believe it was Olympiakos, just to get out of the group stages in second place. You know, Gerard was almost sort of this, uh, almost like a last of the Mohicans character. He was the one that seemed to be sort of, you know, especially for that 2005 Liverpool team, seemed to be the one holding the burden of all of the, the past Liverpool greatness. You know, the Keegans, the Dalgleishes, you know, Ian St. John, all of those great players. You know, Yasunesses, he seemed to be the one that embodied it. And he seemed to be the only one in that Liverpool team that actually understood and was able to reach that kind of level. And then Anfield Stadium and its crowd in some ways, almost represented the the ghost dance. It's the the Battle of Wounded Knee in 1890, which many people consider a massacre. And essentially, what happens is you've got a bunch of U.S. troops and Native Americans on a reservation, and Native Americans start doing a ghost dance. And it's effectively one of their sort of spiritual leaders says, "Look, if we do this dance, this will bring." back the spirits of our you know, fallen ancestors and they will help us rise up and effectively smash the you know US army and get us our land back. And so they keep doing this dance over and over again and it just basically freaks the you know US soldiers out who are basically you know holding you know the Native Americans in the reservation and eventually they attack and you know absolutely huge amounts of casualties i mean it, in textbooks it's called a battle but many people just say it's a massacre because really you know the native americans were barely armed and the soldiers were armed with weapons and guns but that was the point is that anfield just fripped the life out of teams i think the classic example was a few years ago when uh, thomas tuchel was doing really well at Borussia dortmund and he was playing Liverpool in the Europa League. And in the first leg at you know, the Westphalen Stadion, Liverpool hadn't done well and were barely clinging on to the tie. And everyone sort of said, OK, well, is there going to be a great, another great Liverpool comeback? And sort of Tuchel was... I think he'd heard all about it and probably on some level just thought, well, Liverpool are a good side, they'll give it a go. And then he rocks up to Anfield, the absolute... You know, it's completely rammed, it's the European atmosphere, and all hell just breaks loose. And by, by and Dortmund just looked rattled from day one. He looked rattled. They're trying to play their ordinary, you know, fast-paced game, and they're just being absolutely, completely overwhelmed, and they fell apart, and Liverpool won, you know, in an absolutely stirring comeback. And that was the thing, even with, you know, sort of Jurgen Klopp's, you know, success you still have the situation that you have the poor first leg away performance, which then requires, you know, these you know, sort of ghostly Anfield nights where seemingly enough, you know, the whole human history of European football and Liverpool's success within that seems to basically make the players, you know, 10 feet tall, the crowd seems to be deafening all the time, and the walls just seem to be closing in on, on the oppo, who just a week ago were, you know, at home, doing brilliantly well and smashing Liverpool, and now, you know, it just appears like they can't pass the ball to each other.
and that's the, this ability of Liverpool and Klopp and the players and the crowd to almost be able to sort of resurrect the ghost of your answer and the successes. You know, all of those historical Anfield comebacks that just are dotted across the history books. So, bringing it back to Liverpool not winning the Premier League and its importance, is that opposition fans, the media, everyone used that lack of Premier League title as a piñata. They could just, you just could hammer Liverpool fans all day long, just saying, well, look... Even Blackburn have won the league, Premier League. Leicester have won the league. All of the, you know, you've had Chelsea and Man City had had rapid rises. You know, when you know Liverpool were trying to win the title, Man City were in Division Two. You know, Chelsea hadn't won it. You know, had only won the league once in 1955. You know, were running out of money, and then Roman turns up, and and you had this sort of lost generation of all of these homegrown sort of Liverpool players that come through the youth system, but from the local area, you know, Gerard, Fowler, Carragher, you know, McManaman, Jamie Rennett to a slightly lesser degree, all of whom had been brilliant for Liverpool, none of whom who'd won the title, whereby all of these sort of Man United players, you know, you're looking at Nicky Butt, you know, Phil Neville, all of these sort of lesser players, you know, Wes Brown, you know, David May, all of them had won multiple Premier League titles and all these great players hadn't won. And it just really was a huge kind of hole. And the more it carried on, the more sort of fear that it might never happen. And, it, and I think it comes down to how the Premier League was the sort of death now of the Liverpool sort of gen, Liverpool domination and that Manchester United from you know where there's a, a huge regional rivalry were the team that replaced them and I think it's one of the fascinating sort of elements is that the the Spice Boys team of the sort of mid 90s you know with some of the players I've already mentioned you know you had you know, Carragher you had Redknapp Fowler you know Dominic Matteo you know, a whole bunch of you know relatively talented young players, few signings that are coming. You know, Rob Jones, you know David James, and they were talented. They were a good side, and there was always this feeling that they should have done more than they did. That they should have competed for the league titles, and they'd always somehow fall short. And the classic example is the '96 Cup final. You know, it's you know Manchester United going for the double with when Cantona has returned. You know. And Liverpool have a chance to stop Man United getting a double and you know, getting one over on Ferguson. And Liverpool turn up to the cup final where everyone's supposed to wear suits, fair enough. But Liverpool wearing these you know, monstrously 90s, you know, luridly white suits. I mean, you look them up on YouTube, on um, Google Image Search. It is well worth your time. And yet they don't. You know, David James you know, flaps at a corner. It comes to Ger- it comes to Cantona in the you know, 86th minute. Smashes it into the bottom corner from about 20 yards. It was a horrible cup final. Nothing much happened except this one kind of genius moment from Cantona, which robbed us all of extra time and possibly penalties. And Manchester United had won the double, and Liverpool had fallen short again. A couple of years later, they signed Paul Ince with the idea that he's going to be the final, you know, piece in the in the puzzle that is going to be the one that can lead you know, Liverpool to the title. 
you know, they've got all of these lovely, beautiful attacking players. Now they just need someone who's got a bit of leadership and that's, you know, self-professed governor would be the best person. And the fact that, you know, Paul Lintz had fallen out with Alex Ferguson, had gone to Inter Milan. And so him taking the title, you know, from Manchester to Liverpool would be, you know, had a, a great sort of poetic feel to it. But it didn't work. And it didn't happen. Liverpool didn't really come close to winning the title in the 90s. And the, and the irony is, is that why the 96 Cup final has really stuck in culture because of the white suits, because of the Spice Boys and how famous they were. Consider, and this was when the Premier League was starting to get, you know, was starting to explode outside of just your ordinary football fans. They were becoming people that were, you know, being seen on the television, you know, and they were being in advertising campaigns and, you know, they were, you know, a lot of, some of the, the Liverpool players were dating pop stars. And it was that kind of change that a little bit sort of, you know, analogous to the 60s where you had George Best was dating models and you know, having fashion emporiums. You know, it was that kind of mixture between pop culture and sporting culture and how popular the Premier League was getting. You know, from where the sort of low point in the 80s when it was considered a bit of a niche thing to like football, now it's becoming far more middle class. And so the irony is, is that the cup final that people seem to sort of remember in that era is the Liverpool loss. And yet Everton, who were lower mid-table, usually at that period of time scrapping just to stay in the league and trying not to get relegated. Well, they beat Manchester United in a cup final, the 95 cup final, and no one remembers we should be sitting there thinking, wow, the team of the, the 90s, the dynastic, you know, Ferguson United team, lost in a, in a cup final to a lower mid-table relegation strugglers um, from Everton and from you know, Merseyside, where there is this, you know, regional divide between Liverpool and Manchester. No one remembers that cup final. No one focuses on it. It's as if it never really happened. And the point is the Spice Boys are remembered not just because... Yeah, almost because of the ludicrous white suits, because of the lads and ladette culture, you know, where there was, you know, drinking and there was almost, you know, Premier League players weren't quite fully professional in a way that their continental rivals were. You know, and it's, I suppose in a way that Liverpool side, that mid-90s Liverpool team was almost like a last despairing attempt to really marry the boot room success. Roy Evans was going to be the last boot room coach. You know, from that long line, you know, Shankly, Fagan, you know, Paisley, Dalgleish, you know, soon as sort of, and Roy Evans. There was no one else who was going to replace him from there. So who when Roy Evans left Liverpool, it would be a new generation. It would be the first Liverpool manager who would have to come almost in effect from outside of the club and its you know, glory days. And the point was is that in the 90s, you know, Premier League was exploding, as I said. And Manchester United were the team, absolutely the zeitgeist. You know, they had all of these fantastic players. You, know, you had all the, the, you know, the class of 92 started to break through. You had Ferguson. And as a result, you know, Anfield wasn't the biggest stadium. It wasn't the easiest stadium to redevelop in the same way that Old Trafford was, in the same way that St James's Park was. And so, 
you had Roy Evans as a sort of last vestige of that culture of winning and the boot room. And there was an uncertain future when he was going to leave, what was going to happen next. You then had all of these sort of local boys who would have grown up in the city enduring that heyday and, you know, in their careers had learnt from John Barnes and Ian Rush who were still playing for Liverpool in the sort of mid-90s. And so because of the failure of this Spice Boys team and their very modern reasons, you know, 90s excess, you know, which is shown in the suit in the ladette culture, lads culture, you know, celebrity culture, pop stars. And it, in a way, almost sort of underlined that the future of Liverpool FC wasn't guaranteed. There was no guarantee that that level of success was ever going to return. You had Newcastle, which was just as vibrant as Liverpool, and where the owners were spending huge amounts of money, more than you know the Liverpool you know, board were able to spend. You had Jack Walker spending a huge amount of money on Blackburn. You had Arsenal then had Arsene Wenger. And so Liverpool, there was such a, a huge amount of uncertainty and that the future wasn't guaranteed. And if you look at what happened, you had the Gillette Hicks fiasco where you know, Liverpool were you know, hemorrhaging money, were falling apart. You know, they had Roy, Uncle Roy as their manager and some of their signings were massively out of kilter with anything in the previous sort of 30 years of history. It wasn't just that they were going to be in the top five and winning the occasional cup final, this was mid-table. This was pure irrelevance. You know, there was the, the possibility that you might lose Anfield if you can't develop it and all the other teams around you are able to. You know, would you have to you know, share a stadium in Stanley Park with Everton or move out of the city into a purpose-built arena? So once you then lose that, you know, the mythos of Anfield and its power, which we've discussed earlier, is incredible. And it still exists. It's not a myth. It really is. You know, I've been to Anfield on a European night. It is an event. You know, the failure of the Spice Boys led to you know, Roy Evans being dismissed and Gerard Houllier coming in. But that was it. There was no guarantee that that was going to lead Liverpool immediately to competing with Ferguson. And it didn't. You know, Liverpool weren't guaranteed to be successful heading into the 21st century. There were reasons to be concerned. You know, that, you know the... the size of Liverpool and its history wasn't going to be enough when you had you know the deluge of foreign players who might not be you know as excited you might have they might be more interested in living in you know London playing for Arsenal or Chelsea who were starting to spend money you know there was always a possibility that Tottenham would make a bit of a comeback and that when you were picking managers you might pick the wrong one whereby with the you know the boot room you just had literally 25 years where there would be certain you know, one manager left, but his replacement would just be waiting, who'd already be experienced, who'd already be in the perfect position to lead Liverpool to the next level. The fact that all of these local boys, this lost generation, they weren't able to come together and win a title, or even compete with Ferguson, was, I suppose, sort of psychologically scarring in many ways. You know, there was a whole period of time when Liverpool went really the best part of, sort of 10, 15 years without meaningfully competing in the league for the title. Which to a, you know, a generation of Liverpool fans from the 70s, 80s, was just unimaginable. Which I think brings us on to the point of... So, you can establish that the Premier League, winning the Premier League title was you know, the, the club's North Star. It was where every single bit of energy and desire was 
was channeled. But how was it achieved? It, it wasn't a case of they certainly were not underdogs. Yeah, they came into the season being reigning European champions and having, you know, won 97 points the year before, just finishing behind, you know, Man City on the last game of the season. I mean, if you compare it with the Brendan Rodgers outfit that nearly won the title, the famous Gerrard slip, you know, that team had a diminished Gerrard, that had Colatore, that had Simon Mignolet. You know, Sterling had come up from the youth system where he'd been signed from QPR. That team had a far more underdog quality than the Liverpool team where a lot of money had been put in. I mean, but at the same time, you wouldn't be able to sit there and say that they had spent their way to top a la Manchester City. You know, Trent had come through the youth system. You know, Robertson had come from relegated hole for, you know, not a particularly huge transfer fee. You know, Wijnaldum had come from relegated Newcastle. You know, Milner had been a free agent signing. Yeah, there was a bit of coin put into him, but that was still, you know, a relatively bargain basement type signing. James Milner is not, you know, a premium signing. He is someone that will fit in and do a job, and he has done very well for Liverpool. But you have to have a certain amount of talent you know, going forward, James Milner is not going to be the last piece in the puzzle when you win the league, put it that way. He's just a solid building block. Mm. Even the sort of amount of money that they spent on you know, Jordan Henderson, you know, 17, 18 million pounds, which was a record for a teenager at the time, but he had taken years to develop. Yeah, I mean, they'd put some money in in terms of, you know, signing players like Naby Keita and Fabinho. But it was far more organic and less ordained than if you compare it with the money that Man City were were spending and also the calibre of player that Man City were getting in comparison with Liverpool. Really, in terms of high-level you know, calibre, it was Alisson and Virgil van Dijk as this sort of missing pieces, the final pieces, was where Liverpool spent absolutely top whack. Other than that, you know, it was sort of 30s, 40s, and the occasional £50 million. Pounds. You know, the Cater signing hasn't really quite worked out yet for Liverpool. Uh, the Fabinho signing probably has done. I mean, if you think of that, he can be basically a world-class defensive player, he can be a world-class box-to-box, and he can be a pretty, you know, well-above-average centre-half. And he can also play a little bit of fullback. I mean, if you look at the you know the front three, where you've got Salah, Mane, and Firmino, they all came for around you know the thirty million pound mark over you know sort of two or three seasons, but it was as a result of you know selling Coutinho and Suarez and Raheem Sterling, you know, for huge money to Barcelona and Man City. I mean, they were all relatively unheralded. You know, Mane had been at RB Salzburg and then moved to Southampton. And, you know, he'd done well at Southampton, but his numbers don't jump off the paper. It was, you know, you're looking at, you know, 30 appearances, so 8, 9, 10 goals, that kind of numbers. You know, Firmino had been at Hoffenheim, who, you know, not a particularly well-heralded and well-known German team at the time. You know, Salah had been at Basel, had had that move to, big move to Chelsea, hadn't really worked out, had to go to Fiorentina and then Roma. You know, there was a certain question marks whether these three could succeed at a club of Liverpool's stature. I mean, all three improved, and that really is a sort of significant feature of, you know, cloppism. It was very holistic. You know, the board in terms of, you know, John Henry, Tom Werner, Mike Gordon, 
you know, they put solid infrastructure. You've had a new training ground. They've expanded Anfield. They've you know given Klopp you know strong transfer budgets, and they kept faith in him despite the you know, the three final defeats: the loss to Real Madrid, the loss to Sevilla in the Europa League, and the loss to Man City in the League Cup. You know, three final defeats in a row, and. You know, the progress wasn't instantaneous. It took three or four seasons before Liverpool started to kick into top gear. And it, you know, if you compare it to Chelsea, Chelsea would not have not let a manager have as much time and as much coin as Jurgen Klopp did. I mean, the point is, is that when I say holistic, you know, Klopp brought his kind of modern coaching philosophy, you know, coming from the German-Austrian school of pressing, and a brand, and it instantaneously, you know meshed with the you know supporters and it became a joint narrative of overcoming you know heartbreak and adversity to reach the promised land you know Dortmund almost as I said before it's almost like a sister club to Liverpool you know you can easily see you know the Man United of the Ferguson years and the Bayern team that you know of the years when Klopp was in Germany with Dortmund they're similar you know and even Man City the sort of money they have you know, the fact is Bayern would buy you know, Klopp's best players. Bayern were the team that beat them in the Champions League final at Wembley. And more often than not, Bayern would win the league. And that's really what Liverpool had when they finished second you know, under, under Rafa the Gaffer. It was Man United who won the title. You know, when, you know, from the ashes of you know, the Gillette Hicks nightmare and era, you know, when... Brendan Rodgers took them nearly to the, the league. It was Man City that won the league. When you know, Jurgen Klopp had 97 points, it was Man City that won 98 points. And so, when you have a situation where you have that much kind of clarity, you know, it was really, there was nothing but desire to win the title. It was just win the title. It, there wasn't any thought process to what would happen next. It was, we'll, win, we'll, we'll worry about that after our hangovers have abated after winning the title. I mean, I think the only thing I can really compare it to is sort of Real Madrid's you know, multi-year obsession with getting La Decima, the 10th European Cup. It is you know, completely all-encompassing. It just takes over absolutely everything. And so once they've won the title, I don't think there was, much, there was a lack of assessment. And I think that's true of Liverpool's fans, I think to a extent the media, and absolutely to the nth degree, the board and Jurgen Klopp. There was no sense of whether this was a team reaching its peak, or whether it was had already peaked, or whether it was in gentle decline. There wasn't that kind of thought process. It what There was no stick or twist. And so as a result, you look at their transfer signings, they don't particularly make sense. They're muddled. It's not, let's just go, for, in other words, like next season might be the last year you could possibly win the, you know, the Champions League and the league. Or if they think that the team is peaking, then it would be the 99 United team that could possibly you know, won the treble. Or if you think they had already peaked, then you'd start maybe, you know, you'd make a couple of sales and then you'd start building the next great Liverpool team because you'd have a couple of years sort of grace where the Liverpool fans are still just ridiculously happy about having won the league. The point is, is that if you look at Jota and Thiago, they're brought in as complementary signings. They're not there to be absolute plug-and-play 
these are players are better than the players we currently have in the team. That's not the they're they're not those signings. You know, it's a depth signing. The idea was is that okay, if you have Tiago, he's a bit of a change of pace in the midfield, and he can help against mass defenses. You know, Jota is going to be you know wasn't brought in as a long term replacement. He was really brought in as a. I'd say a more dynamic bench option. Someone that you can bring in off the bench with 15 minutes to go. Someone who can slot in if someone gets injured. And you know, generally, I think the idea was that he was supposed to be what Shakiri was supposed to be. You know, someone who was a bit younger, had a bit of pace, seemed to fit You know what Liverpool were trying to do. But it wasn't as if, well, OK, we, if he wins the you know, starting place in pre-season, then that means Mane will spend more time on the bench, or Firmino will spend more time on the bench. I don't believe that that is the case. And if you look at the sort of playing time, the front three are still the front three. And I think if I look back at a few sort of Liverpool signings, you know, I've already criticised the signing of Costantinos, the left-back. And I think even if you look at sort of Takumi, Mina, Mino, you know, there's a question mark over, you know, how were they going to get playing time? You know, if you've brought in a, you know, Lepat from the Greek League and you don't give him much playing time, you know, when you do have to play him, it's going to, you know, he's going to take time. And if you don't have the patience or time to give him five or six games, I think that signing's just not really going to work. And the same thing really with Minamino. You know, you, you were making the jump from the Austrian sort of Bundesliga to the Premier League, and you were doing so in January. And you already had, you know, a front three. You had Origi as the kind of the point of focus number nine on the bench. You had Shakiri, You had, you know, a couple of other younger players. You had Brewster that was still with the club. And so there was, I think there was a bit of, they were almost sort of hubristic signings. That they were so confident with the culture and Jurgen Klopp that they were actually in a position where they could basically afford to cut corners a little bit. Like, oh, this Minamino looks like he could fit in and he could do a job here and there. Sort of player that we could play in the Cups, you know, the the League Cup, the FA Cup, all those sort of Champions League dead rubber games where we don't, we've already qualified. And he could play in the league, you know, when we're playing home against, you know, some pony oppo and you kind of want to keep Firmino fit for a big Champions League game. That kind of situation. And I think there was a little bit of that almost in the sense of, you know, when they signed Kazan. It was almost as if Liverpool were saying, well, we're playing three-dimensional chess and you're all playing checkers. You know, we're two moves ahead. So we're going to save some money. We're going to bring him in now for this, you know, pittance loan fee of you know, nine hundred grand, and he's one for the future. And we can make the you know move permanent in the summer if we feel like it for you know I think something like fifteen twenty million pounds. And he's young. He'll develop, and he will look great in two or three seasons. Despite the fact that he lacks pace and isn't really going to fundamentally improve where they are now. And this is what comes down to the assessment. If this could well be the last chance that this set of Liverpool players, this Liverpool squad has, then you don't want to be going into a Champions League quarter-final, semi-final, final with you know Kazan possibly playing or Ben Davies playing if you actually had the money and you could have got a better quality centre-half. You know, if you look at some of the failures of, sort of Kloppism 
the youth system hasn't really developed as you were all hoping. You know, we were told that you know Harry Wilson, Ben Woodburn, Ray, you know, Brewster were all going to be the next big thing. And although they have you know made banked a load of money for Brewster in selling him to you know Sheffield United, that's not really helped Liverpool as such. You know, I don't think Liverpool needed the twenty three million pounds that much. You know, the the question you can really say is yes, Curtis Jones has played quite a lot this season, but can he reach the next level because of the, the overall quality of the Liverpool team? I think if you stuck you know, Curtis Jones in a mid-table side, he could end up being the centre point of that team very quickly. But if he's going to be in a midfield with Alcantara, with Henderson, with Ginny Wijnaldum, if you've got the front three as they are, even if they're not playing at their absolute peak, they are still very good players, are you in the end going to end up with someone who becomes a sort of a Nicky Butt Phil Neville as opposed to a sort of Vieira Keane type figure? You know, if you, I mean, I, I have a lot of time and rate Neko Williams quite highly, but how much playing time is he realistically going to get, you know, being, you know, a fullback where, you know, you've still got Trent, you've still got Alex, you've got Robertson on the other side who are playing week in, week out. And you're not really going to get anything more than a game where they're injured or they're suspended or you're trying to rest them. It's a, you know, how, you know, Liverpool haven't seemed to find a way to sort of develop loan periods, you know, in the same way that Chelsea have and been able to get the sort of most out of those deals. You know, the fact that, you know, the money that they've got, they got for the Harry Wilson loan deal was just over a million pounds, but by January, they had to cancel that loan deal because it hadn't worked out. So really, what's more beneficial? Harry Wilson becoming a great Liverpool player, or at least a productive member of the squad, or the million pounds that you've got for sending him out on loan, but it hasn't helped his development. I think there is an element that Liverpool didn't think they had to do a huge amount for them to you know, be competitive in the Champions League and the league. And I think if you look at it... I think they've been proven wrong. And I, I think in some respects they've been a little bit unlucky with some of the injuries that they've had. But right now, if you had to look at it, who do you think has a, a better squad in terms of depth? You'd definitely say Man City. have a m- And seemingly enough are a lot younger team. I think Liverpool are, are getting to the point of being um, are ageing to a certain degree. Which really brings us on to sort of you know, what I've called sort of Klopp's malaise. I think there's an inability and an unwillingness to use his abundant political capital. When you are the Liverpool manager that delivers the first Premier League title and the first league title you know, for you know, 20, 30 years, you ha- and you've won the Champions League and you've delivered great football and you really you seem to be a someone who just perfectly encapsulates the spirit of the club and the city, you have power to, you know, and the fans will believe in what you're saying and they will follow you. you. There is an amount of trust level that, if you let's say you compare it to Newcastle fans and Steve Bruce, doesn't exist at all. And, I, and I've done this in previous podcasts when I talk about Liverpool, that you know, I think there's, a, there's an almost sort of inherent conservatism to Jurgen Klopp in the way how he uses his political capital. You know, 
I did a podcast of you know marking his season and, and really Liverpool season when they won the league. And I said, well, I felt that last season was their best chance to have done a United. I think everything that happened that season went perfectly well for Liverpool, but they didn't really compete very much in the Champions League. They didn't compete in any of the cup competitions. It almost felt as if Jürgen's first and only thought was win the league. But it was so abundantly clear well before Christmas that they were going to win the title. I think you could have kicked on. And I think that really was their chance. And, you know, you look at this season, they've had, as I've said, multiple times they've had the injuries. Things haven't worked out quite as well. And I think the real question now is, is that, you know, how is he going to build the next great Liverpool team? You know, you look at some of the players they've got and they've had for a few years, you know, Oxlade Chamberlain has been unable to establish himself in the team for any period of time or to stay healthy. So you know what he can do, but can you imagine him playing 30 games in the season? Can you imagine a Liverpool midfield with him as kind of its centre point? I don't think so. You know, similar sort of story with Cater. You know, Origi's only intermittently effective and he hasn't got any better in the last two seasons. He will occasionally pop up and play well and score you a goal, and but there will be other times where he will be for five, six weeks. You're not playing him, or when he does play, he's not really much of of much use. You know, Shakiri you know, frequently flatters deliver and seems to be really, realistically speaking, unsuited to being a role player and a bench player. I think there's a sense that. Because there was so much going on, you had COVID, you had lockdowns, you had Liverpool winning the league. I think a lot of people really, including Klopp and the fans, the media and the club themselves, the board, I think they've ignored the first signs of the gentle decline phase. Yeah, Alisson's mistake from you know when they played Arsenal away and they've, they've bled into this season. There's been a, a, a bit of a lack of focus when they rocked up to... The IT ad after they won the league and they were a bit hungover and got absolutely pummeled by Man City. But then this season they've been pummeled by Man City at Anfield. They've lost five in a row at Anfield. They lost that massive unbeaten run, which was really huge. I mean, for Liverpool to lose to lose Anfield as a fortress, that is, you know, it's going to take a while before they get fully confident being back at home, especially when you you're not talking. Yeah, there's a lack of fans. And I think those fans have taken really the convenient narrative of the injuries and Man City's dominance to really ignore some of the, the flaws that seem to be uh, Liverpool have had this season. And I think that the national media and sports fans, you know, football fans in general who follow the EPL have really not focused on it because I think you want to focus on anything but Liverpool because after the natural but at the same time exhausted coverage of their title triumph, you want to move on to something else. You know, you've got the psychodrama of Jose versus every single player at Tottenham that has flair that isn't Son and Harry Kane. You have, you know, our Arsenal, you know, will they make that step up? You know, will the Arteta era work? You've got, you know, you know can Ole make the next step with Manchester United? You know, you've got so many, you know, will Pep win the Champions League? There's so many different storylines. You know, can West Ham or Everton break into the top four? There's so many storylines that actually Liverpool winning, a, losing a few games hasn't really had the same impact that it would have had maybe in previous years, where it would have just been absolutely wall-to-wall coverage. And I think it's interesting really to note that 
you know, Klopp isn't seeking to use this year's Champions League, the kind of the last major to- tournament that you know, Liverpool have a chance in, as a sort of last clarion call for this side. He's not saying, look, there are futures on the line. This is kind of, you know, if you win this, then we can keep the gang together for another year. He's not doing that. And I think there's a sense of almost as if they hoped this season the form of the core would continue. Despite the fact that this group as a whole is really moving from their late 20s into their early 30s. You know, you've had a situation where I think that, you know, COVID has had a factor. They've not been able to sell as many players as they might have wanted to do. And I think there's been a sort of unwillingness of Jurgen Klopp to sort of tell inconvenient truths. You know, even to sit there and say, well, maybe the Premier League was winning it, was the high point for this team, and maybe it's not going to continue on. But he didn't really do that. Alternatively, you know, he's not strengthened the defence, and he's not prevented the squad from becoming sort of stale and jaded. You know, he's not kept the window of contention open. He hasn't said to the ownership, actually, I need more money. We do actually have some weaknesses in this squad that you know Man City maybe might not have as bad a season as they did last year. If they hit top form, we could well be in trouble. I mean, you have the you know Mane and Salah have been really yeah. There's been a sort of backstory that they both of them have at times sort of flirted with Real Madrid and Barcelona, and I think in that sense, from their sort of perspective, because as I've said, they've come from relatively sort of. Not the biggest clubs, you know, Southampton, Fiorentina, you know, Roma, Basel, RB Salzburg. You know, Liverpool are a massive club, but in, I think for especially for um, for both of them, because you know Egypt and Senegal aren't particularly likely to have deep World Cup runs. You know, they're generally at the stage of qualifying and maybe hoping to get to the quarterfinals at best, I think, realistically. So for them to have some kind of last major sort of career moment, joining a Barcelona or a Real Madrid would be, you know, five star, you know, really, truly, absolutely massive clubs. You know, when you're at Liverpool, it's, you know, Manchester United are a big club. Man City, you've got Chelsea, you've, there's lots of big clubs, but when you go into Barca and Real, that is the next level. They are true five-star outfits. And I think especially for African players, because you've never really had a situation where an African player has been the centre point of a Real Madrid or a Barcelona. The best poor examples I can give you is Yaya, but they sold him quite early on to you know, Man City and they played him at centre-half for a while. He was never the focal point. That he was at Man City. You know, maybe you could say at Samuel Etu, you know, at Barcelona, but I think in many ways he was sort of overshadowed by Ronaldinho and some of the Spanish players, you know, Carlos Poyol, because they were local boys. You had Victor Valdez, you then had Messi coming in, you know, making his start of his career. I think for Mane and Salah to be Galactico signings would be hugely important for them from a sort of cultural basis. And because now both of them are, you know, entering sort of that kind of twilighty 29-30, and the probabilities is that because Real and Barca specifically, and Real to a lesser extent, don't have huge amounts of money, are they going to want to sign them as absolute jewel signings? 
Or would you rather, if you were going to spend that money, you sign maybe a Erling Haaland, a slightly younger player who you think is going to be there for five or six years at their peak, whereby Salah you'd be saying, well, maybe two or three years before you start to really decline. There's some key questions. How are you going to build the next great Liverpool side? You know, it's an ageing core and it cannot be easily sold. You could, there's no sign of player that you can get rid of you know, in a Suarez because he bit someone, Coutinho because you already had a quite a large amount of attacking players and you needed defenders and a keeper. Or even you know, Raheem Sterling. You're not going to have that sort of player in the, in the new kind of COVID era who you're going to be able to sell for £70 million and then use that money to kind of redevelop and top up your budget. You know, if you look at you know the Wijnaldum contract malaise, that you know they haven't sold him, they haven't really offered him a new contract. It's seemingly enough he's going to leave at the end of the season, possibly sign for Barcelona. But it's on a free transfer. You don't get any tran- You don't get any you know transfer fee for that. And the thing is, is that while we said you know Liverpool's success was you know very holistic, you know there was all the right pieces at all the right time. Can you build a historically dominant squad in the present time on mid-range 30 to 40 million pound plus players? You know, when you're looking at just how young and how dominant Man City can be under Guardiola at the moment, are you going to be able to you know, keep up and you know, trying to get 100 points? You know, you're, I don't think you're going to be able to find another kind of Firmino, Salah, Mane from... You know, Italy, Austria, and you know, mid-table Germany. I don't know whether that is you're going to be able to do that again. And so there was, you know, really a Fergusonian lack of ruthlessness. I mean, this is the whole point. You know, at the moment, key question: Can you realistically see Jurgen Klopp managing elsewhere? Would it, would his stick kind of work at Real, Barca? Bayern, PSG, those kind of clubs. You know, he is the perfect fit for Dortmund. He was the perfect fit for Liverpool and continues to be at the present moment. But would that kind of would he be able to establish that kind of relationship at Barca, Real, Bayern, PSG, where there's far more expectations? There was far more demands for instantaneous success. You know, could you manage see him managing in England? At a club that's not Liverpool, I'm not sure. I think maybe Spurs might be the most you know, realistic in England. I can't imagine him seeing him at Stamford Bridge. I don't see him at Manchester United, and I don't see him at Man City. You know, if you sort of compare him to you know Pochettino, who even when he was very happy at Spurs and doing really well at Spurs, there was always the sense that he'd future-proofed his career. He, you know, he was always like, "Look, I'm happy here, but." In the future, you know, I would love to manage, you know, Real Madrid because I have a dislike of Barcelona from my time at their local rivals, Espanyol. You know, he'd even sort of half-floated, flirted a little bit with taking over at Barca because previously he'd said, I'd never manage Barcelona, I couldn't do that to Espanyol. But then when he was on the verge of possibly getting the job, walked that back a bit. He talked about Juventus because his family had emigrated from northern Italy around the sort of Turin area to Argentina historically and he can manage Juve, he can manage PSG because he playing days, he'd been club captain and now he's the manager. And that's the thing with, with Jürgen because he has sort of 
I suppose, in, surrounded himself in Liverpool. And that's a fantastic, wonderful thing. It therefore means that, you know, he if you're going to be there forever and ever and ever, you're going to have to take on some Ferguson qualities. You know, he, in terms of, you know, when he dropped Bruce from the cup final in 95, because he knew that Bruce was going to be, he didn't want Bruce to stay. You know, selling Andrew Chanchelskis when, you know, at the time Chanchelskis had a couple of injuries, but was still a top class player. You know, selling Beckham, selling Lee Sharp. You know, just that sense of, it's more important to have the next great Manchester United team than to remember the team that won me three titles in a row. It's that kind of situation. And I don't think Liverpool have done that. There's been an unwillingness to sort of tell inconvenient truths and to make those kind of harsh decisions that actually allow a team to rebuild pretty quickly. You know, if, let's say, for whatever reason, Jurgen Klopp isn't able to turn out of this tailspin much in the same way that he wasn't unable to at Dortmund. But where could he go? Would he return to Dortmund? Or maybe the German national team? I mean, international football is a bit of a backwater at the moment. And a Dortmund return could really see him being typecast. That his style only works at Dortmund and Liverpool. You know, four, four star clubs with great histories that have fallen a little bit on rough times. And that they needed a jolt of energy that you know, Jurgen Klopp brings in a style, but inevitably it fades once the side starts to age. And he's unable to arrest the decline or be able to build a new team. I mean, if you look at, you know, there's been, I've said, lack of Ferguson ruthlessness. Fergusonian ruthlessness is, his attitude, I think, towards built team building was a bit like painting some of these massive suspension bridges. In other words, the idea is you paint the bridge, and theoretically the bridge should be fine, and then when it starts to degrade, you then repaint it. But with some of these bridges, because they're so big, you're always semi-permanently repainting it. You start one end... And by the time you've got to the other end, you have to then start repainting again. And I haven't seen that sort of element from Jurgen Klopp yet. I mean, if you look at his tactics this season, they've been stayed. You know, it's still committed to pressing, but you can't really press in the same way because of all of the other factors. The COVID, the short pre-season, injuries, the compressed, you know, fixture schedule. And if you then compare it with the adjustments that, that Pep's made, that have tightened the defence without losing any of the attacking fluidity. He's reintegrated Stones back into form and into the into the first team. You know, he's you know, Yao Cancelo's been reborn from, you know, a jobbing fullback that was barely able to get into the squad, let alone the bench, let alone the team, into someone who is now, you know, an absolute attacking Nirvana he's you know popping up scoring goals creating chances in all these areas that you wouldn't expect a fullback to be in you know he's integrated folding into multiple roles they have five or six young players who could play in the false nine role you know you've got they've got rid of Aguero they've got rid of company there's not really a huge amount of aging players that they are relying on in the same way that Liverpool are relying on Fabinho Henderson the front three you know Virgil van Dijk you know you you know, with Liverpool and Klopp's particularly, you do have the looming threat of Gerrard. You know, considering all the success that he's had you know, in the Europa League and with taking Rangers to the title, you know, how long will Fenway and the fans back Klopp for? You know, especially what if Liverpool, your worst case scenario, fail to qualify for the Champions League? How will that affect his standing? And also more, 
importantly, how would that affect his transfer budget? You know, if you're having to then keep, you know, you don't want to happen what happened with Spurs, where you had under Pochettino, there was just by the time that they had the money to start rebuilding the team, the team had already fallen into you know a malaise that he wasn't able to rectify. That. It was too late for that team, and so the rebuild was going to take that much longer. And then you're coming back to this horrible sort of conclusion that Liverpool had in the kind of mid-90s when the Spice Boy team started to kind of break up, and all that promise started to sort of fall away. You know, are Liverpool once again staring at a you know an uncertain future? You know, with Klopp and how the next great Liverpool team are going to be built and how long that's going to take. Thank you for listening.